Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the All Saints podcast. So it is Friday, 4th of March today. By the time this podcast goes out, it will be Monday, the 5th, 6th, 7th. And it will then have been about two weeks since Russian forces crossed the border into Ukraine. Uh, This has provoked a whole range of uh, comment from, obviously, large numbers of political commentators, uh, military commentators, and a fair number of Christians have um, waded in and given their thoughts about uh, this conflict. And um, it seems appropriate uh, to try and address um, the issues raised by the Russian invasion of Ukraine in some way. Yet at the same time, I am acutely conscious of the illusion of understanding that can easily befall us if we open our mouths to speak on things which are as complicated as this. And so what I'd like to do is to give some kind of Christian response, yeah, but at the same time to try and respond in a way which isn't going to be so hostage to the, uh, well, firstly, uh, lack of information and lack of understanding that I certainly have of the centuries-old history of conflict um, in that part of the world, uh, and and also isn't going to be so hostage to whatever actually happens in the next couple of days or a couple of weeks. All kinds of things could happen between now and Friday and Monday when this podcast goes out. I'd like to try and uh, highlight some ways in which it might be helpful for us to respond just by sharing a number of different things with you. And the first thought uh, that I'd like to just share before, share with you is just for us as a, a congregation at All Saints, we're members of the CREC, the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches. We have one, two, three, four, five, six churches in Ukraine and two churches in Russia. And I thought you might like to know um, what their names are, um, so you can be praying for them. So Holy Trinity Reformed Church in Dunaivtsi, Ukraine, Holy Trinity Evangelical Reformed Church in Ivano-Frankivsk in Ukraine, Christian Evangelical Reformed Church Testament of Grace in Mykolaiv, Ukraine, Reformed Church of Christ the Saviour in Riven, Ukraine, Reformed Evangelical Church of St. Andrew in Pijhaichiki in Ukraine, and then finally God's Covenant Reformed Evangelical Church in Riven, Ukraine. I apologise, I'm butchering those pronunciations. I make no pretense to be able to speak um, Ukrainian. Uh, and then two churches in Russia, Reformed Presbyterian Church in Tumen and Grace Covenant Presbyterian Church in St. Pete, St. Petersburg in Russia, um, where Pastor Neil has been, Pastor Oleg Volkov, who's preached in our pulpit, is the minister. Um, now, you can imagine the feelings uh, on the ground in the congregations uh, represented there um, at the thought that the army of one of those countries has invaded the other. Uh, And in fact, as we speak, there are families from some of those Ukrainian churches fleeing the country, uh, at least some of the women and children are, to go to Hungary or Poland. And we actually have um, a couple of people, I won't tell you their names in this context, but I've been told it's okay to mention that it's happening so that we can pray for them. Uh, One minister from Eastern Europe, accompanied by a doctor from the US, have made it into Ukraine across the border with the aim of offering uh, a combination of pastoral and, I'm assuming, medical support to people who may need it there. So there are some things to be praying for, and some concrete ways in which our prayers in general for those countries could be grounded. And if it's not obvious that prayer ought to be our first response in a situation as complex as this, then, um, well, I, I assume it is, and maybe that will help us in our prayers, just to have some concrete things to be praying for. 
Second thing I want to share with you, again, um, related to this subject, but coming at it from a slightly different angle, is a poem. This is actually one of the first proper decent poems I ever read as um, a teenager. I've shared this with um, one of the Bible and theology classes here at All Saints. So one or two of you may have heard this already just in the last few weeks. And it is, well, it was written really to highlight the horror of war, which uh, I'm afraid seems to need restating at all too regular intervals. Um, I suspect probably because uh, not many of us, some of us, obviously, not me personally, but uh, some folks whom we know will have been in conflict situations um, or currently in the military and face the prospect of that. Um, but because many of us have not experienced this, even really secondhand, um, by talking to people who've uh, experienced the horrors of war, it is all too easy for us to, um, uh, I wouldn't say dismiss the uh, severity and horror of what is experienced, but to be somewhat, um, to, to understate emotionally a uh, sense of quite how horrific uh, war is. I think it was um, Winston Churchill who said war is hell. If it wasn't him, it was somebody famous. But the poem I have to share with you is called Dulce et Decorum, Dulce et Decorum Est. It's by Wilfred Owen, a First World War poet, a British um, poet, who died in 1918. And it describes the experience of walking back from the trenches during the war uh, in Europe in uh, the 1418 war, uh, we now know as the First World War. Um, and it describes these men marching back and then being subject to a gas attack, um, as reference to five nines, which is the name of the shells that the Germans used. You may know that um, German uh, forces in the First World War, like other armies at various other times, used poisonous gas to attack um, enemy troops. And in response to that, the troops have their gas masks and they try and put them on, but one guy doesn't quite manage it just in time. And Owen's depiction of how this young man died, which reflects his first-hand experience, is worth hearing. And I apologise that my my uh, reading of poetry is never very good. I'm not a great poet myself and probably not a great reader of it. But the title, Dulce et Decorum Est, um, is the first portion of an old Latin phrase, which in its uh, complete form reads, Dulce et Decorum Est Pro Patria Mori, means sweet and honourable or sweet and fitting it is to die for one's country. And Owen regards that as a lie in the sense that all too often uh, men are sent to war on fruitless um, missions, on immoral missions, uh, or on, on missions by men who don't have that kind of skin in the game. And his first-hand experience of the horrors of this particular war is, I think, enough to sober us as we contemplate this. So that although we won't conclude that it's never necessary to go to war, and we certainly won't conclude that it's dishonourable to defend your country, we also want to recognise that those kinds of sentiments ought not to be uh, romanticised. And it's against that kind of romanticisation of war that Owen rails in this poem. And I think it may be helpful for us um, as, a, as a counterpoint um, to try and feel the emotional force of what it's actually like in live combat, in conflict. 
uh, when so many of us have not been there. So if you don't mind, I'll read this. And then I'm going to go, we'll, we'll talk some theology and I'll try and explore some of them, uh, how we should think about war in general from a Christian theological stance. But here goes, anyway. Dolce et decorum est by Wilfred Owen. Bent double like old beggars under sacks, knock need, coughing like hags, we cursed through sludge, till on the haunting flares we turned our backs, and towards our distant rest began to trudge. Men marched asleep, many had lost their boots, but limped on, bloodshod, all went lame, all blind, drunk with fatigue, deaf even to the hoots of tired, outstripped five nines that dropped behind. Gas, gas, quick, boys! An ecstasy of fumbling, fitting the clumsy helmets just in time, but someone still was yelling out and stumbling and floundering like a man in fire or lime, dim through the misty panes and thick green light, as under a green sea, I saw him drowning. In all my dreams, before my helpless sight, he plunges at me, guttering, choking, drowning. If in some smothering dreams you too could pace behind the wagon that we flung him in, and watch the white eyes writhing in his face, his hanging face, like a devil's sick of sin, if you could hear at every jolt the blood come gurgling from the froth-corrupted lungs, obscene as cancer, bitter as the cud of vile, incurable sores on innocent tongues, my friend, you would not tell with such high zest to children ardent for some desperate glory, the old lie, dulce et decorum est pro patria mori. So there you have it, Dolce et Decormes by Wilfred Owen. Notice that his, um, his complaint is not against the uh, dignity uh, or the honour or indeed at times the necessity of defending one's country. Uh, what it's against is the friend whom he refers to in the fourth line from the end who tells with such high zest to children ardent for some desperate glory this lie. Uh, it is not... The, the glory, as it is, of um, giving one's life for one's friends, I mean, there's a biblical sentiment, uh, ought not to obscure from us the horror of doing so. And it's with that in mind that I want to turn to um, what we'll spend the rest of our time together thinking about, which is um, what has come to be known as just war theory. Now, what is this? This is... Um, and uh, the result of many centuries of Christian reflection on the subject of war, and in particular, uh, when it's right to go to war and how it ought to be fought. And the content of what I'm going to share with you reflects really the insight of John Owen that war is so horrific that it is almost unspeakable. And therefore, it ought not to be engaged in frivolously or needlessly, but only in certain extremely well-defined circumstances. And uh, those circumstances are outlined, at least 
broadly in what I'm about to, to share with you. I should say this is um, a consensus document in the sense that it's uh, the result of reflection across the Christian tradition for many centuries. It's not, this is not just one denomination's view. Um, obviously, the, the details of the application of this, of these principles, is unbelievably complicated, and that's uh, often where the difficulty lies, even in a context where uh, a country or its leaders are trying to do what is right. The application of these principles to specific circumstances is almost always unbelievably complicated. Now, that's the reason why um, I'm going to refrain from making all but the most obvious comments about um, the current situation in Ukraine. Um, uh, and one of the lessons of thinking about this kind of thing is it may encourage us not to leap hastily to glib conclusions, um, as regrettably many seem to be doing, um, on the basis of a quite short-term uh, understanding of what's actually going on. I, I had a conversation with somebody just the other day who said, you know, we need to remember that the situation between um, Russia and Ukraine goes back two or three decades. And I almost choked at that point, like uh, at least two or three decades. I mean, it's hundreds of years of tension and conflict, which way beyond certainly my comprehension. And I suspect almost anybody's comprehension fully to grasp what it's... Um, uh, how to articulate the rights and wrongs of the political situation which has now led to the current conflict in Ukraine. Um, so uh, just war theory uh, in that context is an attempt really, one way of um, thinking about it is it's an attempt to balance and do justice to a scriptural concern for the sixth and eighth commandments. Uh, the sixth commandment, do not murder, which has as its aim the preservation of human life. And the Eighth Commandment, do not steal, um, the preservation of the rightful ownership of property. In one sense, you could boil it all down to that. It's about um, seeking to work out when it's right to defend your lives or the lives of others, or your property or the property of others, against um, aggression, when the act of doing so may lead to destruction of property or of life in in the war itself. And so it's, in one sense, it is what we're talking about is uh, ways in which the Christian tradition has uh, encoded in these principles uh, the concern to uphold the sixth and eighth commandments. Um, of course, it's possible that um, you could have a situation where both sides at different points are acting. Uh, wrongly, but you could have a situation where, especially in the conduct of the war itself, people on both sides are acting rightly, um, not necessarily at the same moment, but at various points. Um, in other words, it's, it is unbelievably complicated, and it's not um, possible simply to say good guys, bad guys, which seems to be the tendency in some circles. Um, but with that being said, let me just jump in and talk about this. Um, just, just war theory distinguishes between uh, two questions that must be answered in order to ascertain and um, ensure the morality of engaging in armed conflict. The first, when is it right to go to war? And the second, how should war be conducted? There are Latin phrases associated with these things. I've stripped all the Latin out. I'll just give it to you in English. I think that's probably easier. And the question, when it is right, when is it right to go to war, receives six answers. And they are, 
that war may only be declared for a just cause, with a just intention or goal, by a competent authority, with a reasonable probability of success, as a last resort, and proportional to the threat being responded to. Let me make a few comments about each of these. First, the immediate cause of declaring war must be just. So it would never be legitimate uh, to launch an unprovoked attack against another nation. Neither would it be legitimate to go to war simply to defend national pride or just to correct some relatively minor wrong. And one of the tragic features of many conflicts in the history of uh, the world has been the escalation of hostilities as one action provokes a response which is greater and then that provokes a greater response back the other way and so on. So responding to trade tariffs by declaring war is very hard to see how that would be justified. In the end, war ought only to be declared by a nation as a necessary response to military aggression against them. That seems to be, broadly speaking, um, the the only kind of cause that could um, justify such dramatic action. But of course, questions arise, don't they? Um, in what circumstances could a preemptive response be justified? Imagine if you've got literally hundreds of thousands of troops amassed on your border, but not over your border, on the uh, opposite side, so to speak. What if you have intelligence that um, uh, there are plans to launch some kind of terrible and dramatic attack? Would it be legitimate to act preemptively? And it's not easy to determine in which circumstances such a preemptive response would be appropriate. Similarly, really troubling questions arise concerning international alliances. If we want to say that um, the immediate cause for declaring war must simply be to defend your own country from aggression. Would it ever be legitimate to seek to defend another country from aggression? I mean, if you think about it, so many of the major wars in our recent history and, and somewhat more distant past in the 20th century have been um, have escalated for that reason. The Second World War is an obvious example, so is the First World War. But somewhere along the line, we've got to ask the question, is the cause of this war just? Was there unprovoked aggression on one side or the other? Or did the aggression escalate in some way that makes it unjustified? Second, distinct from the cause of going to war, the intention or the goal of going to war must be to establish peace. Other potential aims like regime change or economic gain have never been seen by uh, the historic Christian tradition as legitimate grounds for going to war. It may be the case that uh, the regime in a particular country is obnoxious or uh, ruinous to its own people, but historically that's not been seen as generally, I emphasise generally, legitimating the declaration of war by another country. Of course, questions then arise in all kinds of uh, directions. First is, I mean, how would it never be? I mean, if if a national leader were butchering his own citizens in their hundreds of thousands or millions, would that be sufficient cause for another nation to take up arms against that nation? It's not easy to answer that question, is it? Because at what point do you cross the line? Um, the questions also arise, and this is where you get into a tremendous tangle with situations like the one in Ukraine at the present time. 
when a war may have other subordinate effects that don't themselves constitute a just cause, but nonetheless will be secondary effects of going to war. So something like uh, economic gain, or perhaps even personal self-aggrandizement on the part of leaders. Um, It's very frequently the case that the effect of going to war may be to improve the economic um, outlook for certain sectors of one's own nation's industry. Now, it's likely to be bad overall, just considered economically, but um, how many wars have been fought over oil, for example? Uh, And one suspects that the the motives of those who uh, initiated the declarations of war may at various points have been contaminated with those concerns. And here's the problem, because um, what if entering a conflict uh, creates those subordinate outcomes and it's not always easy to untangle or deconvolve them from what may be legitimate uh, reasons for the declaration of war? Not easy to figure it out. Uh, Third, uh, war may only be declared by a competent authority. Only properly constituted governments may go to war, otherwise their violence in biblical terms is just the violence of a private individual against somebody else, albeit a very powerful one. And they must do so by formal declaration. Private individuals, unjust governments, dictatorships and so on may not do so. And the point here is to respect uh, scripture's teaching in, for example, in Romans 13, that Christ has given authority to certain people acting in certain offices, the civil magistrate, broadly speaking, to uh, use the sword in the pursuit of justice. That doesn't mean that any old person can grab the sword and start waving it around, or even that the person who happens to occupy the position of political authority may do so in his private capacity, or for motives that have more to do with personal advancement than anything else. Of course, questions arise then, because Um, Modern governments are very complex and they often don't take the shape that um, might have been envisaged by the uh, uh, scriptural writers when they're talking, for example, Paul in the book of Romans. Now, which branch of government should be responsible for the declaration of war? I mean, different different governments are constituted in different ways. And in the US, should it be Congress or should it be the president? Or, you know, it's it's one thing to say, well, this is what the Constitution says. um, But it's another thing then to ask the question, well, is that how a government ought to operate. And it's not easy to figure out whether that's the case. Um, One looks at um, not just Russia and Ukraine today, but many other conflicts, and frequently one sees significant division within the government or within the governing institutions of the country over whether such and such a war ought to be declared. Certainly um, in the UK, back in the first Gulf War, there was an enormous amount of uh, dissension and there have been in other conflicts since then. Not always the case. In, in some contexts, there's been far greater unanimity, but it varies. Questions also arise about um, whether the citizens of a country can legitimately be compelled by their government to serve in military conflict. Most governments, though I don't think all, have, um, so to speak, a get-out clause or a, a, the that's not intended to be a pejorative way of putting it, but um, someone who conscientiously objects, perhaps on religious or moral grounds, to serving in an armed conflict. Normally, there is a, there is a space for conscientious objection. Um, uh, and in the case of a war which requires a, a large military force, people are 
if they're required to serve, they can serve somewhere else. Um, but then questions also arise, um, somewhat disconnected from that, whether private individuals in one country may legitimately serve in the military forces of another. And that, you think about it, is a really intriguing question, because at the very least, it raises um, questions about th that are more connected with the circumstances in which it would be right to seek the overthrow of your own government. Think of a, a crass, but nonetheless reasonable illustration. Would it have been legitimate in the late 30s or early 40s for a German citizen during World War II to seek to assassinate Hitler? You'd have been seeking to serve, so to speak, in the military forces of another nation. Well, um, part of us would want to say yes, wouldn't we? And yet, on the other hand, we'd have to think quite carefully about the implications of saying that and how we'd frame the justification for doing so. Number four, any war to be just must have a, a reasonable probability of success. That is to say, war may not be declared in futile situations, since then the use of arms is likely to result simply in more deaths and casualties. A just war must have a reasonable probability of success. Now, this is unbelievably difficult to think about. Think about it in practical terms. Well, what's motivating this? Now, what's motivating it is the sense that human life is so very, very precious that there are circumstances in which it would be better for a nation to surrender rather than to risk uh, a huge number of fruitless casualties among uh, its own people, even when such surrender may result in the loss or destruction of vast amounts of property. Now, on the one hand, you can easily see the biblical warrant that people are more valuable than things. One human life needlessly lost is an unspeakable tragedy. How much more the thousands or tens and hundreds of thousands of human lives that have been lost in conflicts all over the world. And yet at the same time, people feel very strongly about defending their property. And you can see that uh, both in the domestic sphere. Um, if, you, if you imagine for a moment what it must be like um, to uh, have uh, Russian tanks rolling down your street outside your house, uh, how that must feel given the understandable sense of love for your place and your country and your town and your village and the people who have lived there. Um, you, you don't want to disparage or dismiss lightly the willingness to sacrifice for one's place, for one's country. And yet at the same time, um, scripture uh, would want to highlight the value of human life even over those things. And so at some point, we have to try and work out um, in what circumstances the right thing to do would be to surrender, even to a war that was declared without just cause. And it's not easy to do that. No one's pretending it's easy to do it. But these uh, criteria arise from a concern to do justice to that biblical thought that people matter so much more than things. Of course, this immediately raises all kinds of other questions. So, for example, uh, would such a principle unreasonably restrict the capacity or the right of smaller countries to defend themselves, like uh, some of the smaller Baltic states or some of the smaller European countries would have no chance? If, if let's imagine the very worst for a moment that we, or, or almost the very worst that we could imagine uh, in Russia and Ukraine at the present time, if 
um, the Russian forces continued not just to march through Ukraine, but other neighboring countries, including smaller and weaker countries. Um, we wouldn't want um, glibly to articulate a principle which would forbid those smaller countries from seeking to defend themselves. But then you've got to ask, what would they defend themselves with against the Russian army, for goodness sake? It's not like it's some small military force. And does such a, a motive, if followed consistently, actually incentivize larger countries to flex their muscles? One wonders whether um, sometimes that's what actually happens. Larger countries know that um, smaller countries would rather surrender than risk catastrophic civilian loss of life. And therefore, they're willing to be gung-ho in the declaration of war. And we wouldn't want a principle that um, thoughtlessly uh, led to that kind of um, side effect. So that's not simple either. Fifthly, war may, only declared, war may only be declared as a last resort after all peaceful alternatives have been exhausted. And this is, uh, I guess, um, historically, this will be envisaging the situation where um, one country fears or perhaps is beginning to experience aggression from another. And it goes without saying that um, uh, one ought to seek to find a resolution to the conflict that avoids direct military engagement with the danger of loss of life because human life is so valuable. But of course, then you end up entangled in all the unbelievably complex questions of um, international politics where you may have an aggressor, for example, who appears to be using negotiation as a delaying tactic while preparing for war, or maybe they've flipped it around. They've um, invaded partially, stopped, and sought to establish a sort of new baseline for negotiation. Well, you wouldn't want to say you mustn't go to the negotiating table, but neither would you want to concede that new baseline, because that would be to concede the point that's already been uh, illegitimately transgressed to. Now, just to give a, a sense of the complexity of the situation in Ukraine, this is one of the arguments that will no doubt be brought forth in the months and years ahead as, Lord willing, if this conflict does subside um, in the short term, people are trying to establish the rights and the wrongs of the Russian invasion and, and questions will arise about whether um, this has been a legitimate response to some kind of prior wrong or whether it was just this kind of aggressive move seeking to establish some new baseline, or whether it was actually just an attempt at occupying the whole country. And I've heard commentators saying all three of those things, um, seeking to predict the future, and I've no idea, and none of us really have any idea, which one is going to turn out to be the case. Finally, uh, a war may and must only be declared uh, with some sense of proportion that is to say, the anticipated benefits of waging it must be proportional to its anticipated harms. Um, for example, to prevent invasion and occupation by a hostile force that is uh, seeking to destroy people and property, well, that would seem to be um, uh, reasonable in the sense that it is uh, what the goal it's trying to achieve uh, is some, somewhere in proportion to the the damage that will result, so to speak, from the goal being achieved is somewhat in proportion to the damage that would result if nothing were done. But it's possible, isn't it, to imagine situations in which um, the, de the declaration of war actually brought about more harm than good, uh, and certainly with the benefit of hindsight, and the question that arises, well, how are you supposed to know that in advance? And of course, it's not straightforward. Um, this is distinct from the principle, which we'll come to in a minute or two, about the use of 
the, the proportional use of force in the conduct of war itself. This is just to do with thinking, okay, what's the worst thing that could happen if this, uh, let's say this invasion is not resisted? What's the worst thing that could happen? Okay, well, what's the best and worst possible outcome if the invasion is resisted? And that question has to be considered because one would not want to uh, carelessly or thoughtlessly throw away human lives in pursuit of a trivial, uh, likely increment in the outcome of doing so. So there are some uh, thoughts which arise from Christian reflection over the centuries on the grounds upon which war may legitimately be declared. Now, how should it be conducted? Strikingly, Christians have insisted over the years that uh, it's not the case that anything goes. All is not fair in love and war. Uh, and in particular, uh, Christians have articulated what can be brought down to five principles that ought to govern the conduct of a just war. And these are, in various ways, aimed at minimising or, or reducing uh, human cost, the uh, property cost of conflict, and also bringing war to a swift end. And we'll see why that's the case. And this has some extremely significant uh, implications, actually, for many Western nations in the light of um, revelations that have come to light in recent years, as we'll see in a moment. First, the weapons and tactics used in war should be able to distinguish between enemy combatants on the one hand and civilians and non-combatants on the other. That first principle of distinction is vitally important. The weapons that may legitimately be used in war have to be such as distinguish between soldiers and civilians who merely get caught in the crossfire. And it's possible to imagine all kinds of things that on that ground are terrible, but nonetheless legitimate. So conventional firearms, missiles, bombs, uh, electronic weapons of various kinds uh, would be uh, considered legitimate from a Christian perspective in the pursuit of a just war, provided they're actually aimed at competence or other military targets. Illegitimate weapons are also quite easy to uh, imagine and are frequently used with devastating effect. For example, poisons, nuclear weapons, landmines and so on, other weapons that can't be reliably aimed. If there's no way of even uh, having a reasonable likelihood of reducing civilian casualties or confining the effects of a weapon to military personnel and military targets, it's very hard to see how a weapon itself could be a legitimate one morally. Moreover, even using weapons that could be used legitimately but in an indiscriminate fashion ought not to be contemplated in pursuit of a just war. And the most obvious example of this that I can think of is the deliberate carpet bombing of German cities by uh, British um, uh, bombers during the Second World War. It was a self-conscious attempt to demoralise the civilian population by destroying homes and killing civilian people in Germany. And it's all the more reprehensible because there was perfectly good intelligence um, and uh, papers had been written uh, in the uh, Ministry of Defence uh, by people who ought to have been listened to, showing that it was extremely unlikely that such tactics would have the desired effect. In fact, it was known from previous 
historical examples that if you inflict large civilian casualties in that kind of way, it tends to stiffen the resolve of the enemy rather than weakening it. And yet, nonetheless, the carpet bombing of German cities went on uh, for with, with hundreds of thousands of lives lost in um, cities in Germany. But this raises all kinds of questions about how you respond to uh, deeply troubling and unjust tactics from the other side, so to speak. How do we respond to the use of human shields, for example, when they're used to, uh, you can imagine a military installation being deliberately placed in a civilian area by an opposing force in the hope or the expectation that you wouldn't uh, launch an attack against it. And then that's used as a base from which to attack you uh, with devastating effect, possibly causing even more civilian casualties. Um, what about the possession of disproportionate weapons, but merely for their deterrent effect? Of course, this becomes a huge issue in the uh, questions are, uh, surrounding nuclear weapons. I'll lay my cards on the table here. Um, it seems to me obvious that the use of nuclear weapons uh, in the conventional sense in which we mean it, where they are used, uh, strategic nuclear weapons, taking uh, untold numbers of human casualties over a vast area, and there's no conceivable way that they could be targeted uh, just at uh, military targets, and the long-term effects for human health and well-being are absolutely ruinous and known to be so. It's very, very hard indeed to see how such weapons could be justified. Um, and even so-called tactical nuclear weapons, it's not at all clear, as far as I can make out, I'm not a military expert and I'll happily concede to those who are, but it's not at all clear that those um, can be known to uh, avoid the problems associated with larger scale strategic weapons. But what should we do if the other side has them? Um, ought they to be maintained um, as um, something which would deter other irrational actors from using theirs? It's not a question that can easily be answered. Second, proportionality. Um, here in the conduct of uh, conflict on the ground level, on the, the, the smaller scale rather than the declaration of war itself, the weapons and tactics used in war should be proportional to the immediate threat faced or the immediate aim in view. And this is where um, I think it, it, it looks to me like uh, people with more experience in the field of conflict have interacted with uh, ethicists and theologians in um, an attempt to, to bring to bear some insights from what war is actually like um, for troops, uh, soldiers and airmen and seamen and so on. Um, and to highlight that uh, you may find yourself in a situation where the, the local environment is one where you could launch a vastly disproportionate response to a comparatively minor threat. So, for example, it wouldn't be legitimate to launch a vast airstrike deploying thousands of bombs and destroying huge areas of um, a city in order to occupy one building. Um, th those kinds of aims uh, tempting though they may be in the immediate theatre of war would not be legitimate. Uh, killing thousands of troops to get one street further forward is very hard to justify, regardless of whether the loss of life is on your side or on the, on the other side, so to speak. 
And of course, questions then arise in situations, especially when the opposing army appears willing to sacrifice many of their own troops in order to obtain something completely negligible. And the trench warfare of World War One, about which um, Wilfred Owen wrote, was a classic example where um, you have a, both forces appear to be directed by leaders who seem willing to sacrifice huge numbers of their men to gain almost nothing. How do you respond proportionately to something like that? Third, military necessity. Any individual action undertaken in war, as well as the war taken in toto, must be necessary in order to help in the defeat of an enemy. Actions intended to accomplish other aims, for example, to shape the future government of the enemy country or to influence one's own future economic opportunities, cannot be justified. And so you can easily imagine this kind of situation. Um, in the, the prosecution of a conflict, there will be many opportunities to make a significant impact on um, the enemy's communications and industrial infrastructure, for example. And such an impact could produce financial and economic benefits for uh, uh, industries in your own country, at least in the short term. Uh, it would be very easy to justify that just as part of warfare, but it wouldn't be justified unless it would be justified morally, that is, unless it could be shown and known to be in the interests of prosecuting the legitimate aims of the conflict itself. Now, again, you've got questions arising here about how, how this is applied in practice. So, for example, consider the Vietnam War, where defoliants were used to destroy large areas of vegetation um, in Vietnam. Um, now, what was that necessary? Because on the one hand, you want to say, well, those were potential food sources, um, uh, potential hiding places for enemy troops. Uh, on the other hand, you want to say, well, you're causing vast long-term ecological damage. And really, do you want to be putting yourself in a position where you're arguing that it's legitimate to destroy an enemy food source? Is that the sort of thing that you want to say you want to do? Well, it depends whose food source it is, doesn't it? Um, whether it's being used by an enemy troops as they're attacking you or whether it's being used by somebody else. But again, you've got the unbelievable complexity of trying to work out what is necessary in um, different situations that a military force might find itself in. Fourthly, during the conduct of any war, prisoners of war must be treated fairly. Now, this is important um, for a couple of reasons. Um, let me just highlight a couple of details first. Enemy combatants who've surrendered or been captured or who otherwise pose no threat may and must not be attacked or mistreated. And this principle is intended to incentivize the surrender of opposing troops by assuring them of their personal safety if they do so, thus bringing the conflict to a swifter conclusion. This is one of the things where it seems to me that uh, we've... Uh, potentially taken, I don't want to say maybe, uh, let's not say taken our eye off the ball, we've been exposed uh, at one or two points in uh, recent history, uh, both here in America uh, and also in the UK where I'm from, uh, as having not taken this matter into account. If you think about um, what you're trying to do in the theatre of war, if you could flip a switch and suddenly all of the enemy troops would surrender. Wouldn't you do so? 
Well, this principle is designed to incentivize that. You want it to be the case, if you're going about this conflict justly and Christianly, let's say that, you want it to be the case that every enemy soldier would much rather surrender than continue to fight against you. Because if they did, it would make the conflict come to an end much faster. And this uh, would then, you, you, what you'd expect to happen then, if we were taking this seriously, is not that uh, enemy troops would be the target of retribution and violent attacks, so that they'd rather fight to the death than surrender, potentially uh, killing or harming many, many more of your own troops than they otherwise would. You want it to be the case that, that given the chance, they'd rather flee their own side and join you, even as prisoners of war, because they'd be far better treated. If that were the case, it's just it's hard to know what the impact of that would be. But one wonders, especially in some of the uh, conflicts in um, recent years where British and American troops have been fighting against uh, quite brutal regimes known for the terrible conditions in which their soldiers operated. One wondered whether some of those um, conflicts could have been ended sooner um, just by mass defections from the other side, if it weren't the case that they all feared terrible treatment at the hand, hands of Allied troops, whether that fear was justified or not. Of course, in practice, this isn't easy to do. Because how do you determine in the immediate theatre of war whether an enemy combatant actually poses an ongoing military threat? You have um, a parachute descending from an aircraft. How do you know what man's going to do when he hits the ground? Or sailors escaping from a shipwreck? Perhaps that's easier, but um, it's not always the case that somebody is surrendering at that point. How do you respond in such a way that you're honouring this principle of not wanting to be at war with somebody who would rather surrender, whilst at the same time respecting the fact that you do have to take seriously your calling to defend your country and your people as a soldier. It's unbelievably difficult to do this, and it's uh, to to highlight this is not supposed to uh, is not to be taken to uh, as a criticism as though it's an easy thing to do. Uh, notwithstanding the fact that at one or two points it looks like this principle has been ignored completely. Then finally. No means that are evil, just in and of themselves, are to be used in war. There are some uh, tactics and some weapons which, whose use could never be justified because it's simply impossible to imagine them being used righteously. So, for example, um, uh, rape and torture of uh, anybody uh, in, in the, uh, the prosecution of a conflict. It's impossible to imagine conducting uh, a war justly by doing those things because those actions are evil in themselves. Likewise, um, Christians have argued over the centuries that forcing enemy combatants to fight against their own side or using weapons known to cause disproportionate suffering are both um, unjust. And there are um, uh, weapons that have been designed specifically to cause disproportionate suffering. Um, rather than uh, for the sake of um, a better, uh, efficiency, for want of a better word. Um, now, questions arise here about how to determine whether a particular weapon is even in itself. I mean, some of the examples I just gave are fairly straightforward, but not all are. When all weapons seem evil in some respects, it's quite, um, it's, it's hard not to um, react with revulsion against the thought of um, weapons being used against other people, um, 
even with a clear-headed assessment of the legitimacy of doing so in some circumstances. And then what kind of suffering counts as disproportionate? I mean, you know, hollow point bullets, are they disproportionate? This is hard to uh, draw up clear-cut criteria here. But all of these things are designed, well, there's two effects, if you like. The, the, the intention is to encourage a high degree of uh, circumspection and thoughtfulness and care and caution uh, in both the declaration of war and in the uh, undertaking of war in an attempt to hold uh, as significant what scripture holds as significant, human property, and of course, above all, human life. And that's what these things, these principles are designed to preserve. The effect of them, I have to say, as I read through these, and I try and think, well, how would you transpose these principles onto a situation like we're currently seeing in Ukraine? Um, I find myself torn in two directions. On the one hand, um, I think uh, you look at some microcosmic situations, some cameos, and you think, yeah, that looks like a clear-cut example of um, righteous heroism or just outright wickedness. And then you look at the bigger picture or at other specific cameos, and you just think, my goodness, what a tangled mess. And if the effect of thinking through these things is to make us all pause and exercise a little bit of caution and circumspection uh, to dispel the illusion of understanding which grips so tightly so much of the time. If that's the effect of going through these, then it will have been worthwhile because uh, whatever else um, the war in Ukraine and all wars are, uh, quite apart from being horrific, um, they are complex and ought not to be subjected to a kind of simplistic analysis. So we'll end with that, um, and with a reminder um, that even as an uh, individual denomination, we have uh, brothers and sisters in Christ on both sides of that disputed border. Uh, so quite apart from our call to pray for uh, all people, uh, to be able to live peaceful and quiet lives in godliness and holiness, let's pray for them. And the Lord bless you as you do so. Bye for now.